those of you who know me uh, perhaps better than most will know that the first part of chapter 2 in this letter uh, is one of my favourite passages uh, and we're actually going to be concentrating this morning on the verses immediately after that, verses 12 through 16. So let's just read them together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through to verse 16. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights to the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Perhaps the reason why so many love the writings of Paul, and perhaps equally the reason why so many don't love the writings of Paul, is because of how practical he is. When he, when he brings the word of God to us, when he was writing to these congregations, and of course we know that many of the letters that he wrote were to, were, were to deal with problems that were going on, issues that they were going to face, uh, persecution that they were going through, and so he didn't just teach them the truth, he didn't just give them uh, the, the doctrines of God, he was very practical in, in, in the way that he gave them that message, he was very practical in the way that he would apply that message to their lives. He left them in no doubt as to what they needed to do because of the truth that God was revealing to him to teach to them. And so for those who want to please God, that will be the reason that we love the writings of Paul because, because he gives us something that we can apply to our lives, that we can practice in our lives. Equally, those who want to do what they want to do will not enjoy the teachings of Paul because he gives them things that need to change in their lives or improve on in their lives. But we see that his, his practicalities are, uh, are unmissable and impressive. When he writes to these churches, he will relate, he'll take the doctrine and he'll relate that, after he's taught the doctrine, he'll relate that to our duty as in what to do with that doctrine. He'll take uh, the truth that he teaches them and then he'll apply that to character and how it should change us and what kind of people we should be because of that truth that we now know. Now know. He'll take the things of faith, the things that we believe, the things that we hear, the things that we know about God and he'll apply them to our lives and how it should change us and what we should become because of them. In other words, what he'll do is, he, Paul will take what he has been given, what he has been revealed, what has been revealed to him by God, and he will then teach that to us, as he has been doing for the last 2,000 years through these letters, and he will try to make, he will make us aware of our responsibility. Our responsibility in the context of what we need to do with this truth. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We recognize that uh, that kind of relationship, that kind of correlation, that kind of, here's the truth, here's what you've got to do with it, that is, we, we recognize the truth of that in every walk of life. It's, it's not a new concept for us, it's not something that we struggle with on a daily basis, we live by it. If you uh, go to the bank for a loan, June, 
and you sit down with the bank manager and the bank manager will say, you might not use these words, but the truth of it is, June, here's the interest rate and here's what your payments per month will be. You know, and it's not it, it, it's it's not difficult for you or any of any, any of us to to grasp the concept. But here are the facts, and now here's your responsibility. You have to pay us so much per month. You know, and we don't bat an eyelid at that. We might at the payments, you know, but we don't bat an eyelid at the fact that we have to pay it. That relationship's quite uh, quite simple. It's quite uh, easy for us to grasp. For those of us who, are, who have a job, for those of us who work a certain amount of hours, for those of us who have an, an employer, a boss, it's not a difficult concept for you, Topolina, to, to understand that if the, the, the boss at Asda gives you a job or gives you a shift, that it's your responsibility to be there and to be there in time and to work when you're there, when you're supposed to work. Now, we may, we may not like it, we may not feel like it. Some may not even do it, but we understand that that responsibility is there, that that relationship is there. For those of us who are in a marriage or any kind of relationship, we understand the facts of that relationship and our responsibilities to them, and we make promises, spoken or otherwise, uh, because of that. So the concept makes sense to us. And here in Philippians chapter 2, in that first part, part, especially in verses 5 through 11, Paul describes to us an example that has been left to us by Christ. Paul teaches that the brethren at Philippi, and also us, and anyone who was reading this letter at the time, he describes who Jesus was in a, in a very short passage, and what he's done. And the example, the example that has been left to us because of what he has done, and the attitude even that Christ had that caused him to do what he did, and we can read, and perhaps we will at some point through this lesson. I, I, I'm not sure if we'll, we'll do that. But uh, certainly in your own time, I would encourage you to read that. The first 11 verses, especially 5 through 11. It doesn't just talk about the facts of what Jesus has done for us, but it talks about the attitude that he had, the thoughts, the, the mindset that he had that caused him to go through what he did. In fact, let's just look at some of them anyway. In verses 6 and 7, it talks about the fact that uh, Jesus sacrificed his glory, his position with the Father in heaven. It says, Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard the quality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So here you have Jesus, the Son, with the Father, in heaven, in all his glory, perfect God, almighty God, wonderful counselor, all the things that we read about in the Isaiah chapter 6 earlier this morning for the call to worship. And yet, he also wants to spend eternity with us and he realizes that uh, he can't do that unless he goes to the cross and pays the price that we're supposed to pay. But he has this that he will lose with the Father and he says, you know what, I'm willing to give that up. I'm willing to give that up, albeit for a time. And I'll go down. And so Christ sacrificed that. There's a huge, a huge example of sacrifice there. Because no one had more to give than Christ. No one had more to lose than Christ. And yet, because of his love for us, felt that he had no, no one had more to gain than Christ. In verse 8 it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, what I want you to understand from that is the, the example of Christ that we have there is how he restrained his power. Well, big deal, you see. I'm sure you wouldn't say that, but maybe it doesn't seem like as big a deal. He restrained his power. It was only for a time. He came down and he became a man. And he placed himself 
at the mercy of things like physical pain, hunger, thirst, all of those sort of things, the emotional distresses and pains, we know that uh, God encounters them even in his relationship with us as divine God. But Jesus came and he, and he limited himself to those physical things. He even limited his knowledge because we know that Christ as God knows all things and yet he gave that up. He limited the things that he, that, that he can know. He limited the things that he can do. And we know he did amazing things and performed great miracles when he was here. But he still restricted his power. Perhaps to help us understand what a great sacrifice that was, we don't like to give up any kind of power or influence that we might have in any aspect of life. Let me give you an example. I remember when I was uh, at Corby Youth Weekend, when I was about 12 years old. In fact, I think it might have been a a, a vacation Bible school, because we were down there for a few days. And we were in the class, and the class was great, and I was loving the class. And the, and the teacher was asking questions. She would ask a question, my hand would go up and I'd answer the question. Another question, my hand would go up and I'd answer the question. Another question, my hand would go up and I'd answer the question. And that went on for a few minutes. And finally the teacher said, when she asked the next question, my hand went up and said, Adam, I'm going to ask you not to answer, I'm going to ask someone else to answer that question. I was devastated. I mean, I was really upset. I, did, I could not understand why I should restrain myself because I knew the answer. Why should I restrain myself from giving the answer so that someone else could give the answer? You know? And if we have a knowledge or if we have an ability or if we know, this, if we know something's right, it, it sometimes can be hard to just hold back. And Jesus held back a great deal for our sake. Because it's a big example there that he's left us. He also, we also read also in verse 8, the verse that we just read there, that he puts himself in the hands and at the mercy of ungodly men, of ungodly people. We know that he could have snapped his fingers and a legion of angels would have come and taken him from that cross and taken him home to be back with the Father. And he says to those men who murdered him, I'm yours. Take me. What an unbelievable example we have from Christ. And so now Paul says, based on that example, based on everything that I've now told you about Christ in just those few verses, Although it being just a few verses with a huge impact, with huge meaning for the Christian, now Paul says, it's over to you. Here's the, example, here's the truth about Christ. Here's the doctrine about Christ. Here's the example left by Christ. Now it's over to you. Now I'm turning my attention to you. Here's what I have to say for your life. And you see, it's all for a reason. And that's what, Paul, that, that's what Paul does. When Paul gives, and that's what he's going to do here, when Paul gives us a truth, when Paul gives us something that uh, has implications for our lives, when Paul gives us something that's going to change us, he doesn't just say this is what you should do. He, do, he gives us a reason for it. God, through him, gives us a reason for it. It's not just, uh, it's not just some record of random events that, that make a, a nice story or, or, in, or in this uh, context, you know, quite a, a thought-provoking and maybe even disturbing story, a, a story of huge impact. But it's not Paul just writing, uh, and this is what happened, and this is what happened, and then on to the next point. Paul's saying, all, all Paul's going to say to us, all of this counts for something. All of this means something. All of this has a depth of meaning for you, the Christian. 
I'm not just writing this so that you know. I'm not just writing this so you can put your hand up in a class and answer a question. It has a greater meaning than that. It's not just some ancient fable or piece of history that might interest us, that might be interesting to hear. Paul is saying there is purpose here. And when we read that passage about Christ and the example of Christ, we can see that it is a determined, meaningful, profound purpose. It's a purpose with depth. It matters. And it speaks to every one of us. And so therefore, Paul uses this example of Christ as a base, as a foundation for us as Christians to grow and to respond and to build upon and to use in our lives. I've mentioned it before, we're talking in the the, the college-age class on a Sunday morning about maturity. We're looking at the the book of James and how James encourages us to grow and to be mature or, or to to be involved in the process of maturing in a relationship with Christ. And Paul's encouraging the same here. He says, because of these things I'm teaching you about Christ, something should happen. You should grow. You should progress. You should mature. You should move on in your relationship with Christ. And so he tells us what to do in the passage from verses 12 through 16 and indeed further on than that. And in verse 12 is is, is the part I want us to look at. He says at the end of that verse, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we look at two things uh, this morning that, that really surround that exhortation, that encouragement, that instruction that Paul gives us there. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, most of us will know, I'm sure enough, about... The teachings of the scripture regarding faith and works will know that, uh, for instance, um, Hebrews especially, and James also, talks about uh, Abraham uh, as a prime example, and perhaps one of the best examples, and certainly one of the best known examples of the relationship between faith and works, we know that Paul talks about it as well in Romans. We know that Abraham was a man of faith, but, but that his faith was proved to, to others, and even to himself, by the works that he was involved in, and specifically they'll mention uh, the, the sacrifice or, or the impending sacrifice of his son and the instruction to do that, although God stopped it. We also know that because of those teachings, when we put all of those things together, that our works don't save us. Now Paul's saying here, work out your salvation, but we also know that works don't save. You're not going to get into heaven, Janet, because you're a good mother. You know, that's not, that's, God is pleased with that, but it's not what saves you. You know, Aileen, you're not going to get into heaven because you're a, you're a conscientious employee, because you do your job. And, you know, uh, Nicola, you're not going to get into heaven because, you know, you're faithful at worship or, or, or any of these things. They're good. God is pleased with them, but we know that works don't save. Most of us, I'm sure, know the correlation and relationship between faith and works. But we also know without, without those works, that if, you, that if you don't show yourself to be a good mother, or, or if you're a very poor employee, or if you're not faithful to worship, that James calls your faith useless and dead. And the lack of works proves that. You know, it's not dead because you don't do that. You, just, you don't do that because your faith's dead. Uh, and that's just the proof of it. But Paul makes it clear here. Paul, Paul might as well say to us, Okay, Christian, do you believe? Verses 5 through 11. Do you believe the things that I've taught you about Christ? He can't really say, Do you believe the things that I've revealed to you about Christ? Because we already know these things. But he's reminding them and he says, Do you believe them? Do you really believe them? 
And if the answer is yes, Paul will say, right, okay, then that changes things for you. Then that, that means something to you. If you believe what I'm telling you in verses 5 through 11, if you really believe it, if you really understand it, if you really know what I'm talking about, then something's going to happen to you that's going to have an impact on you. And you have a responsibility, and there's that word again, that, that Paul doesn't always use, but always wants us to see. Here's the truth, here's your responsibility. Or here's the truth about Christ, do you believe that? Then you're going to have a responsibility to act on that. You're going to have a responsibility to do something about that. Because it means something. It's not random. And so he would ask every single one of us, one of us this morning, People of the church in Cumbernauld, do you believe what verses 5 through 11 says? Well, then you have a responsibility to, to do something about that. There are going to be some decisions that you're going to make because you believe that, if you really believe that, if you really do. You have a responsibility to act, to be, to do, because of the things that you believe in those previous verses. Now, there are several lessons that he gives us in this passage from verse 12 through 16. We're not going to look at all of them, but for instance, in verse 14, he, he tells us, you know, one of the things that's going to happen because you, believe of, because you believe in the things that I've taught you about Christ is you're going to do all things. You're not going to be a moaner in verse 14. You're not going to be one of these negative, complaining, moaning people. Well, how does that Well, Just read verses 5 through 11 again. And see what it is Christ has gone through for us. And see what it is Christ has given to us. And we're not going to complain. No matter what we go through in life. We are not going to be a people characterized by that kind of negative attitude. But that's not what we're going to look at this morning. Verse 15. He tells us that we're going to live uh, the kind of life that is above reproach. Does it mean nobody will ever criticize us? No. But it will mean that nobody will ever have a good reason to criticize us. There will be some people who just don't like us. There will be some people who, who are shamed, perhaps, by the life that we live because, because it is a good example. But they will have no reason. We talked about this when we were looking at the, the uh, qualities of an elder uh, in, in the men's breakfast study. An elder should be above reproach. Does it mean he'll never be reproached? No. But it will mean he won't be reproached justifiably. But people will still criticize us. But if we understand what Christ has gone through, we will live the kind of life that people won't have a reason to criticize us. And he encourages us to make that kind of change, to make that kind of growth. He also says in verse 15 that we're going to stand out, that we're going to shine as lights in the world, that we'll be different, that we'll stand out from the crowd, that we won't be swimming the same way as the rest of the, uh, you know, the fish that will be swimming against the current, against the flow, against the stream, against the crowd. We'll stand out, we'll shine like lights in that sense. And then in verse 16 he says, holding fast the word of life. I remember talking to uh, Gary Bradley, who's the preacher at Mayfair. And I remember when he was talking to his dad, when his dad was, uh, during the, the last days of his dad's life. And he asked his dad, just for some piece of wisdom, some piece, piece of advice. And I don't know how the whole conversation went, but that was the gist of it. And his dad said to him one thing, and it was stay in the word. And I know that part is exactly what he said, that's a quote. His dad said to him, above all things, stay in the word. And Paul's saying, if you understand and believe verses 5 through 11, that's what you'll do. You'll understand that. It will be a resp- it's a responsibility, but it will be a reaction that will be, that will be the case for you. But we're going to go back to verses 12 and 13. And the first thing I want us to see that if we really believe 
verses 5 through 11, there's going to be a responsibility to obey. Obey the same word that we're talking about. The word of life. The word of God. But look at what Paul says there to the brethren. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Do you recognize, and I think you will, that there are two kinds of obedience there. There is an obedience, first of all, that happens only in the presence of others. And unfortunately, perhaps, is the most common kind of obedience that we see around us. There is an obedience that even, even when we talk about a relationship with God, even for those who would wear the name of Christ and call themselves Christians, they have in their lives, they have, they, 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 the practice of their lives is an obedience that is only in the presence of others. So perhaps when we are not with a certain group of people, in our context, in our, in our case, when they are not with their brothers and sisters in Christ, when they are not with the church, when they are not with their brethren, perhaps their language changes. Their conduct changes. In our, in our 23 years here in Cumbernauld, we've seen that kind of thing happen. Some have even admitted to us, as we talk and as they mature in the relationship, that those kind of things have happened. That perhaps when the preacher enters the house, the drink is hidden behind the couch or put away, you know. Or the TV channel is changed because what's on is not appropriate for when the preacher walks in. This is the kind of obedience, this is the first kind of obedience that Paul draws our attention to very subtly. He praises them for not having that kind of obedience. Sometimes you'll find that when, when that happens that perhaps it is actually a problem and the people you're talking to don't know that you know it's a problem. So you praise them for it because they think, well, they don't know that really that's not the case but I'll change it because they're praising me and encouraging me to be the opposite. Obedience when only, in the, only in the presence of others. Sometimes we use the phrase Sunday Christians. You know, those who, those who come to worship and they'll take on a certain air, they'll take on a certain standard of behaviour, but then they kind of, it's almost like they, they clock out and check it in when they, when they leave the building and it changes and it's not the same through the week. Those who perhaps maintain an illusion or create or make an impression. Why? Because they're afraid of what others might think. And depending on who they're with, that will determine what their behaviour is. And so when they're with Christians, they'll perhaps behave a certain way because they're worried about what they might think and they want to make an impression on that group of people. And then they're with others, they, they want to make a different impression because they're afraid of what they might think. Or perhaps, maybe even worryingly so, when they're with those who aren't Christians, maybe that's the way they really are. And that's not the illusion. And the illusion is only when those who are children of God are present. And what, of course what we need to be is those who care about what God thinks and not what others think. This kind of obedience that Paul is kind of alluding to is certainly not what is expected or what is desired by God. Paul himself, if you go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, in this passage, in this letter to a different congregation, he calls it, um, he calls it uh, men-pleasing, or, or maybe some of your versions will call it eye-service. Look at that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves or servants, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service 
as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. You see that? Don't be the type of people who just do what you have to because it pleases someone. You do something because it's right, and you do it regardless of what situations you're in. Go to, go to Matthew chapter 6 and see what Jesus himself has to say about it. Matthew chapter 6, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to just read a, a couple of verses from this passage, beginning with verse 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus said to the crowd, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, and here's, here's the bit that should, that should make us sit up and take notice. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore you give arms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honoured by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Look at verse 5. When you pray... You are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Look at verse 16. And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Jesus says, is your obedience that kind of obedience that is only there when other people are watching and when other people are present because you want them to think that you're a good Christian. And they'll pat you in the back and say, Paulina, you're doing a great job. Mary, you're a great Christian. You're a great example. But when they're not there, you're different. It's that obedience that is only in the presence of others. Well, do you know what? You'll get your pat in the back. You'll get your praise from those who you're around. Jesus says that. You'll get your reward, you'll get your praise, you'll get your commendation, you'll get your admiration from those who are around you and think you're doing great. But he says, that's it. That's your reward. Don't look for another reward later on when you face God in eternity. That's the only one that we're going to receive. If that's the kind of obedience that we practice. Some call it an environmental faith. It's a faith that is only active and only presents itself when the environment is right when the right people are there, when the right situations are present. What Paul is wanting, um, and I should have told you to keep your mark in Philippians 2, if you turn back there, what Paul is wanting is the obedience that is present even when nobody else is. And of course that is going to be less of a common thing. It's an obedience that is about pleasing God. And that's it. And if men are pleased, great. And if men aren't pleased, so be it. But the aim is to please God and to do what, what uh, is good in His sight. And that kind of obedience is going to produce a faithfulness no matter what. No matter who we're with. No matter how hard it is. No matter how difficult the situations might be, we'll be faithful. I couldn't help but think about Noah. Noah, who in Genesis chapter 6 we're told, found favour in the sight of God. The only family. When the rest of the world, you know, we look around and we think the world's a wicked place. And God still holds back. He hasn't destroyed it yet. We're still here. I don't know what it must have been like in Noah's day. It was so wicked that God regretted that he had made mankind and destroyed the entire world apart from this one family. I don't know how bad it must have been. You talk about it being difficult to be a faithful Christian in our society. 
Noah was obedient to God when he was surrounded by it. And it didn't matter who was watching. And it didn't matter who was looking. And it didn't matter who was pleased other than God. And it didn't matter who was against him, who criticized him, who opposed him. Noah was obedient. That's the kind of faith that God wants us to have. That's what's called for. With a marker in Philippians 2, go back to Colossians. Colossians 3. Uh, We'll read verse uh, 22 again. But first of all, I want to read 17. And then read 22 through 24 of Colossians 3. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters, verse 22, on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's the kind of obedience that God wants. That's the kind of obedience that Paul is talking about. That's the kind of response, the kind of responsibility that we have because of what he has taught us in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 through 11. Look at Psalm chapter 51, 51st Psalm. Verse uh, 15 through verse 19. Psalm 51, beginning verse 15. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare thy praise. For you delight not in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favour do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Is God saying, I don't want your offerings and your sacrifices to those in the Old Testament? No, he had commanded them to do that. But he didn't want it if it wasn't from here. He didn't want it if it was just, as Paul called it, an external obedience, as if it was pleasing men so that it would please men, so that we would be seen to be doing the right things. He wants us to want to sacrifice. He wants us to want to offer. He wants us to want to love him. Then he will accept the sacrifices that we give. Then he will accept the offerings and the worship that we offer him. Does God not want us to come to worship him? Of course he does. But not because others expect us to be here. Not because it will make us look good. Not because it will give us some impression or, or illusion or, or, or anything like that of faithfulness. But because we are faithful. But because we do love him. Then he will accept our worship. Then it's pleasing to him. Go back to Philippians. But to chapter 4. Beginning verse 11. Paul says, Not that I speak from want, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The kind of relationship that we have with God and the kind of obedience that he's talking about is the kind of obedience that Paul's talking about here that applies in every single circumstance. Good, bad. Easy, trouble, difficult. Support, opposition. 
with the brethren, without the brethren. Obey. That's the kind of obedience. There is a definite correlation, a definite relationship between understanding verses 5 through 11. Read them again. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, there is a definite relationship between understanding and appreciating those verses and the response that it will draw from us. The reaction that it will provoke within us. There will be, because we understand it, there will be a sincerity, a depth, a love, an obedience that is, that is true and genuine and impressive. And it is an obedience that will be between me and God. It will not be because I'm with certain people. It will be because God deserves it. And God draws that kind of response from me because of his love. And that leads us to the second thing, and that's in uh, the last part of verse 12 and verse 13 of Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, what Paul's saying there is that we have a role to play in our salvation. Now, before you get, you know, upset, oh, but, it's, but it's God who saves us. Yes, it is God who saves us. But we have a role to play in the relationship that is created when God offers us and brings us, brings us that salvation. He says, Paul says, that we are to work out our salvation. And that's chapter 2, verse 40. We won't turn there. But that's where Peter after the 3,000 have been baptized, and he continues to preach, and he continues to teach, and he says to the people of that time, be saved, I think he, say, I think he says it in the, in, in the phrase, be saved from this perverse generation. That's something like that. But he tells them, be saved. Wait a minute, I thought it was God that saved us. How can I be saved? How can I actually do it? Well, we can. We have a role to play. We are not completely passive uh, we're talking about active and passive and the difference between those two things in our teenage class uh, this morning. But we are not completely passive when it comes to salvation. Okay? We are to be saved. We are to work out that salvation. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter says, Make sure of your calling. Right? Make sure that you, are, you have this relationship with God that is going to get you there, that is going to make sure that you spend, spend eternity with him at the end. So again, there are several verses there that prove that we are not completely passive when it comes to our salvation. The passage that Peter's talking about, that's chapter 2. Well, we have to hear and we have to answer the call of the gospel. We hear the word of God and we respond to it. That's not passive. Hearing the word of God may be to a certain extent, although we have to go to hear it, and then we respond to it. That bit's active. Uh, the, the passage in Second Peter 1, and also this one in Philippians, is saying, see it through. Be faithful. Go to the end. That's active. Work it out. It is like, um, it's like serving your time. Like an apprentice will serve his time before he's a qualified joiner or plumber or whatever it might be. He has a certain time and, and he's to work during that time. And he's to see it through to the end. If he doesn't see it through to the end, he doesn't get the qualification. Well, God has saved us. But we are to see it through to the end of this life so that we can make sure that we then receive what it is God wants us to have. And that is eternity with him. And he doesn't, he doesn't just say work it out. And I want you to get, I want you to get that. It's not, it's not work it. It's not earn it. It's not um, 
Take it. God gives us that. But we are, to, we are to see it through to the end. Stay faithful. It's what he's saying. But we're to do that with fear and trembling, he says in the last words there of, of uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. With fear and trembling. We, we don't have time to look at them this morning, but the Bible talks a lot about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord produces knowledge. The fear of the Lord produces wisdom. The fear of the Lord produces salvation. The fear of the Lord um, produces strength against temptation. The fear of the Lord produces endurance. The fear of the Lord understands all of the things that God uh, wants us to know and do. Proverbs talks about it a lot. If you want these passages afterwards to read on your own, please come to me. But Proverbs 1, 7, 8, 13, 10, 27, 14, verses 26 and 27, 16, 6, 19, 23, 22, verse 4, and several other passages passages that really talk about the benefits of the fear of the Lord and that is how we are to live it's, a, it's this awesome respect of, of who God is someone sent me a picture this week of a tornado that went, uh, that went over Huntsville uh, Dick Savage sent me the pictures and it got some amazing pictures of this tornado actually going over the city and there was one where there was a church building there on Whitesburg Drive and this tornado, and the lights are all, it's huge stained glass windows on this building, and a big steeple, and this tornado is right behind it, in black, black sky. And it's an amazing picture of power. But as soon as I seen it, all I could think of was, when Christ comes again, that will look like nothing. And it really, I've got to tell you, it really was an awesome picture. And it really made you think, wow. But when Christ comes again, it made me think just how awesome and fearful that will be that even those who are faithful even those who love him even those who know that he is back to take them home it is going to be such a such a demonstration of power that we will all fall to our knees in fear and trembling we underestimate and undersell how awesome and powerful God is but it is knowing how important all of this is. Verses 5 through 11, all of the things that the fear of the Lord brings. Verses 5 through 11 in Philippians 2, all of the things that Christ is, is knowing all of these things and understanding how important they are. We'll stay faithful. Again, there's depth there. But it's not just us working, it's not just us working out our salvation. It's not just a part we have to play, that God has this part to play as well, huge part, obviously. He is working in us, Paul says to the brethren here. And he's working for two things. Look what he says there. It's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Two things will change. Because God, God is working in us. When God works in us, He will actually change the very desires that we have. He will actually, if we understand verses 5 through 11, He will work in us so that more and more we will become the people whose desires are for Him, whose will is for Him. Again, it's all to do with knowing and understanding what He says about Jesus in those preceding verses. It will change the very desires of our heart. And then in verse 11, and then in the part where He, he works in us, so that we can then work for him and work with him, he will obviously, as we know, equip us and partner us to accomplish the things and the purposes that he has for our lives. Look at uh, a couple of passages here and then the lesson is yours. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. 
Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of, of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom the glory forever and ever. Amen. He changes the desires of our heart so that they become for him. And then he provides what we need to actually see them through, to fulfill it and to do our part. Look at Philippians, back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says to them, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's like we become partners. Paul even calls himself that at one point. We become partners of God in this life. How amazing is that? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 10. This is the last passage I want you to look at with me this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I laboured even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul was doing. Paul's obedience wasn't just an obedience when others were around. The, the desires, you look at the early life of Paul as when he was called Saul and look at him now, the desires of his heart had changed. Why? Because he understood what he talked about in verses 5 through 11. And he understood now that God was working in him and so that those desires changed but God also gave him what was necessary to do what it was that God wanted him to do. And he was doing it. Not just when it was convenient. Not just when the right environment existed. He was doing it regardless because he wanted to please God. Unfortunately, many who claim to be Christians, who claim the name of Christ, do not experience this, uh, the greatness of this work of God within us because perhaps we, we lack the faith, but perhaps we lack the love for God, or we lack the desire, or we lack the understanding or the care for what Paul teaches about in those preceding verses in Philippians chapter 2. Two things, if we understand what he says in those verses. We will obey with an obedience that is not just there when others are there to see it. And we will commit to that obedience so that we see it through. And we will work with God, in partnership with God, in our lives, for the rest of our lives, until he takes us home. I remember when I was uh, young and at school, um, and, I, and I, most of you know I loved maths and physics were my two favourite subjects. And uh, confuses you in there, but it really was. I really did enjoy that. And uh, I, I would know the answer. And I'd be able to get the answer very quickly most of the time, and I would just write it down. And the thing that used to frustrate me was the teacher saying, show your workings. And if I had a test, show your workings. That right? That's what they say in it. And you'll get credit for showing your workings. And I, 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 I couldn't be bothered showing my workings, because I got the answer quick. It would take me too long. Just write the answer, I knew it. She says, I want, to, I want you to show your workings. I want you to show me that you understand what's going on. That you know what's happening here. Paul's saying, here's the truth about Christ and what he's given to you. And you know the answer. So while we're getting to the answer, show your workings. Obey and commit to it. And be faithful for the rest of our lives. It's all tied in and connected.
connected with the truth that we know. It's all tied in and connected with how much we understand it, how much faith we have. It's connected in, connected and tied in with how we live and where we're going to be for eternity. It's not two random passages that Paul, that Paul just has stuck in there together. They go together. Here's the truth about Christ. Here's the response that's appropriate. Here's your responsibility. This is not some lesson that is to bang you on the head and say, you better get obeying, you better obey for the rest of your life or you're going to be lost. It's not that kind of lesson that Paul's given us. It's a lesson of understand what I'm talking about here. Understand who Jesus is, what he's given up, what he's done, what he's sacrificed, who he is for you, what he brings to your life. And understand what is appropriate what is an appropriate response to that? What responsibility do you have to respond to that? To react to that? To live a certain way because of the privileges that we've been given? Let's strive for that. God bless.